want to go back now to page 112. I want to show you a process we used to significantly up math scores. And I want to tell you how the teacher used this. And you can do this online as well. But on page 112, what she did was this. She began to identify the steps in a math problem. And this, again, was an in-person activity, but you can do it online. She had them take this paper and put it on graduated sheets of paper, take three pages, fold them over, make them graduated, and staple them together. They had to handwrite on that paper this process. Step one, read the problem. And then on the underside, they wrote what they were supposed to do. Step two, step three, step four, step five. They got three points for each answer in their math. One point was, did they circle the information? One point was, did they identify the strategy? And one point was for the right answer. And she had a fifth grade class in math. Many of them had never passed math state assessment, okay? And she made them do this with every math assignment they did. And at the end of fifth grade, 100, this school was 100% uh, poverty and it was 90% minority. And at the end of the fifth grade, 100% of her students passed the state math assessment at the proficient level. What she did was she so embedded that process in, so it was such a level of automaticity that they ended up having it automatically when they got on the test. So it's an idea I want to give to you. It's how you embed a process uh, at the level of automaticity. Now, I want to talk about um, other things as it relates to uh, students from financial poverty. We talked about space being an issue. Part of the reason is this, middle-class households are organized by function, okay? In other words, you have the bedroom, you have the living room, you have the dining room, okay? Uh, let me ask how many of you have a junk drawer in your kitchen? You've got your house organized by function, okay? So space equals function and organization. But when you have 14 people living in four rooms, every space is used for everything. So the concept that you would have space on a paper, that you would have space um, to do your work, that's not going to happen. So you have to teach them how to handle space. The second thing is time. One of the things that happens is there's two ways to keep track of time. One is emotional time and one is abstract time. You have to, emotional time is how it feels. Okay? Abstract time is you have to have that minutes, hours, days in order to get tasks done. One of the reasons many of your students don't get tasks done on time is the concept that time and task are related is not there. So one of the things I would ask you to consider for your own thing is how you begin to help them 
assess time and task. And we give them planning documents where here are the tasks, here's the time, and check them off so that what we start getting is an accurate relationship between time and tasks. Uh, it's one thing that it's one of those underlying skills that you, you need, you'll need. And the other thing is abstract representational realities and mental models. If you'll go in your book, abstract representational realities, I just want to explain it this way. And you go in your book to page 52. What happens is this. You read in that article about abstract representational realities and how you live in both a sensory and an abstract world. The issue for many of our students is they live in a sensory world, but that translation to the abstract representational world that school exists in is not there. So one of the tools I'm going to recommend to you is this, to help kids understand that. Yes, CHAMPS is very good. Okay, they can give a predict good prediction. It's a very good tool. One of the things I'm going to recommend to you is that you take a picture of your student or you ask for a picture of your student or you take a picture of you and you put it online and you say to them, is this me? And they'll go, yeah, that's you. And then you ask them this question, is the picture breathing? And basically they'll go, well, no. And then I'll say to them, how is that me if it's not breathing? And they'll go, well, it looks like you. It represents you. And I'll say, exactly. And that's what school's about. The letters aren't the sounds. They represent the sounds. The numbers are not the things. They represent the things. Okay. The drawing in your book of a cell is not the cell. It represents the cell. And that's what we're studying, that abstract representational reality. And that is a concept. And so we represent it through mental models, through drawings through analogies, because that translates from the sensory to the abstract, and we use it. So what we learn, and one of the reasons I took you to page 52 is this, when you have students or having difficulty with your content, what you want to figure out is inside their head, did they gather the data, okay? If you've ever had a kid and you said to them, they say to you, I can't find it. And you say it's in this section of the text and they come back and say, no, it's not. I looked. What you know is that they didn't gather the data to begin with. So you have to teach data gathering skills in abstract environments. Um, and so what you're looking at is these. What we find is they can gather the data input in sensory environments, but not in abstract representational environments. So these are processes for gathering information. And in your book now, on page 53 and 54, you begin to look at it. What you see on 55 for the music teachers and the art teachers, here's how music develops these 12 input skills. And so one of the reasons music becomes huge in your program and art is it helps kids gather data. Look at all the skills you have in music that help them in their academic tasks. And that's why it's so important. Now, I want to show you a couple of emotional skills. 
emotional development skills. Okay. But one more academic skill. Page 220, 221. How many of you have middle school kids who cannot read beyond a third grade reading level? And your non-readers are the majority of a male. I wanna show you a tool that you can use. It's called Tucker Signing Strategy. And it's your book in your book on 220 and 221. And you can get it on our website called Tucker Signing Strategies. And it comes with a video. But here's, the, here's how you get middle school kids to read. It's a signing strategy. And what we tell them is this. Letters hang around together. But when they hang around together, they, they don't sound like themselves. They're kind of friends and they hang around together. But they don't always sound like themselves when they're together. And so there's a, there's a hand signal for each, there's, for each chunk or each sound. And we teach them these hand signals with this caveat, okay? You have to teach this to a younger kid, okay? So if you go on, you can teach this online. If you go, there's lessons, 23 lessons that they teach. And you ask them to show you teaching it to a younger kid. And you give them a grade for that, if you can, or extra credit. I don't know what your rules are in Ohio about that. But what happens in the process of teaching those signs to a younger kid, they learn to read themselves. Like, for example, S-H-I-R-T, shirt. What we tell them is that letters hang around together. So S-H are big buddies. And when we're there together, they go, shh. Okay. R has a lot of friends. When it's with I, E, or U, it goes, er. It's when A is with R, it's not so good for it. Okay. And T, but every now and again, T's hanging around with I-O-N, and then it goes shun. Okay. And you give them a word like shirt, and they go shirt. And then we say, all right, say it faster, and they can read. A lot of schools have used it to significantly change the outcomes of their special ed kids. one person I know taught an um, uh, autistic child, 18, quite severe autistic, how to read, okay? When he taught him, he only knew a Mack truck. That's what he really loved, or trucks, Mack truck. And the bottom line on the thing is you can do it. But it only works with middle school kids, basically. If you can, they have to teach it to somebody young. And in that process, they learn it themselves and learn to read. You can teach a whole class about how to sound out words. And when we do it that way, we say, okay, we're going to teach you a strategy for how you sound out words. And then we teach them this one. You can teach the whole alphabet in about two, two and a half days, but the, or a couple, five minutes every now and again. But what you're doing is teaching them to sound out, and it's how they deal with embarrassment. But we've had a lot of success with that. And it's a strategy. It is simply a strategy. And it's on DVD. And it doesn't cost much money. And it's a tool you can use for your non-readers. I worked with the middle school in Las Vegas. They had their special ed kids. There was a, this is when we were in person. 
but there was an elementary school one block away. They had their special ed kids walk down to the elementary school. There was a teacher in attendance, but they taught this to first graders who were second language. And in the process, both groups learned to read. So it is a wonderful way to go about doing that. Um, so take it, uh, it's just incredible. And then I wanna give you a strategy for kids who like to argue with you, an emotional strategy. It's in your book on page 230. This is not to teach kids. This is for you. This is for you to know about when you get in an argument with a parent or a kid. And it's on page 230, okay? It's called the Cartman Triangle. It is one of my favorite, okay? How many of you have had uh, somebody, have you, teacher or student blame you? How many of you have been blamed? How many of you have had a parent come in and want you, or a student wants you to rescue them? They're a victim. How many of you have had that happen? How many of you have actually rescued somebody? I can raise my hand on that one. All right. Okay. So let me explain how this works. There's three rules about this. If you get in the triangle, you'll take on all three roles eventually. Okay. Number two, you will never solve the problem. And number three, the only way you stay out is to ask questions. And I have even um, drawn this out for people before when they want to argue, okay, and just said to them, you know, we could go here, we could spend all day here, but we're not going to solve the problem. So let me give you a couple, a basic example, then a school example about how you use this, okay? But when my son was in the second grade, he came home from school and he said, mom, I'm bored. He's presenting himself as a victim. And what I'm supposed to do is go up to school and rescue him. And the way I'm going to rescue him is by bullying the teacher. Okay. So I said to him, Tom, I'm sorry that you're bored. I said, whose problem is that? He said, it's the teacher's. I said, is the teacher bored? He said, no, I am. I said, then it's your problem, isn't it? I said, so let's solve your problem. But if I had gone up to school to rescue him by bullying the teacher, then the teacher would have felt like a victim. Then the teacher would have gone to her principal to be rescued. Principal would have rescued her by calling me and bullying me. Then I would have felt like a victim. And I would have gone to my husband to be rescued, but it would never solve the problem. So when you get this, a student blaming you, a parent blaming you, or a victim, one of the things you want to start doing right away is asking questions. If you defend it, you say, yeah, it's a Socratic method. It's wonderful, Mark. If you defend yourself, whatever, then the bottom line is you're sunk because now you're in the triangle, okay? Um, let me give you one more example. When I was a principal, I had a father come up to school and say, you are going to promise me that Brandon never gets into speaking distance of my daughter again. He is, he is sexually harassing her. I said, well, thank you for coming to see me. I take this very seriously. I said, Brandon has rights too. 
I said, so what I need to know, we need to know what he's saying to her or doing to her and what she's doing back. Okay, what we, we, I have to know more about this. I said, do you know? He said, I have no idea. She just said he's bothering her. So I said, okay. So I called Kate in and I said, Kate, when Brandon does these, what does Brandon do? Okay. She told me, and I said, what does he say? She told me. I said, what do you do when he says those things and does those things? She said, I smile at him. I said, does he know that you don't like it? And she said, I smile at him. I said, so what do you think he thinks that means? By that time, her father was about to have a heart attack. He said, you can't do that. You can't smile at him. You have to tell him you don't like it. So anyway, one thing went to another. And then I, we sent Kate back. And I said, look, I'm going to work with Brandon because those are inappropriate. I said, but Kate needs better defenses. I said, what are you going to do when she's in high school? It's a date rape situation and you're not there. I said, don't you think we need to give her skills as well? He said, absolutely. I said, so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to work with Brandon. If anything else happens, I need you to call me and tell me right away because we're not going to have that here. Okay. So he, so he never called me again. So the bottom line is I stayed out of the triangle. We found a solution. We got the problem solved. It's a wonderful tool. I absolutely love it. And it helps you deal with the emotional issues that people bring to the table. Uh, students, by the time they get in middle school, they're really good at this triangle. Uh, and they've used it on a lot of people. Now, what I'd like to do to close out, I'm going to put, there's several other strategies in here, but there's a lot of information. It's intensive. So what I like to do is in the hard research, if you want people to remember, you have to give a time for them to go back and summarize. So I'm going to ask um, uh, Mariah uh, to put you in uh, your breakout rooms again. And what I'd like you, when you get to your breakout rooms, if you would go back over the agenda for today, identify what was most beneficial to you, what you want to try and remember to use, okay? Um, so what I want you to do is go uh, do a summary by the agenda, which was most helpful to you, what will you take back and use, okay? And what specifically do you think will help you make a difference in your student achievement uh, issues, okay? what will help you be improve uh, as a focus school, okay? And I need you to come back and report that to me. It's kind of my the evaluation of me where I know what was important today. So three things. What stood out for you from the agenda? What will you use? What do you think was most important for you as you look at yourself as a focus school? So Mariah, will you put them in breakout rooms, please? There's one thing higher than high expectations in John Hattie's stuff. It's collegial efficacy. 
to what extent does a staff work together around kids? How do how does staff work together to support kids and get them where they want them to get there? And that's a huge issue. And that's why I showed you that model of performing a team around a kid, because that's collegial efficacy. How you begin to make that happen, it's got an effect size of 1.6. It's huge. It's like three years of growth in one year. Um, can you, you make that happen? It says input things like checking email, writing an email, planning time. That goes beyond our advisory. Also talking about having kids create their multiple choice questions. When we come back in December, one of the options we can do is talk about just do that activity as a group, how you actually teach it and debrief it. The debriefing is hot, uh, more important than the teaching or, or, or the question making itself. Thought it was interesting, only 35% of word meaning can come from context. That's right. And so you don't, you, 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 you can't figure it out from the, the meaning of the passage. You need the, the, uh, uh, word breakdown. Who else had a comment? Uh, could, if we could have feedback from one more group. Uh, it says the teacher has to have a strong sense of self-efficacy and teacher efficacy in order to empower the students. Yes. And one of the things we know is this, that you have to be able to, when you get into middle school, and I want to say something about IB kids. Not only do you have to be able to stand up to the kids, but you have to be able to stand up to the parents. And one of the things that's really critical is that you be able to identify and explain for your parents of IB kids why you are requiring them to do what you're asking them to do. And most kids that are awful at planning, so teaching them how to plan out. One of the strategies I didn't show you was planning backward and it's a very powerful strategy, is what you and I do all the time, in which we say, okay, I got to be to work at eight o'clock, but tomorrow, today there's a snowstorm, so that means I have to leave a half hour earlier, which means I have to get up at this time, which means I have to do this. It's planning backward, and it's an incredible tool. Um, yes, and you can use the observed behaviors and strategy numbers, and then look at the effect size and say, all right, this is one that we really need to do. That strategy we did that activity on, that's a strategy you can do whenever you have a student who's, who's in trouble. You start looking at them and thinking, okay, what can I do to motivate better performance? And I love one thing I didn't talk about, but you guys did the future story with your students and that's fabulous uh, because that becomes a regulation tool. It's a tool you can use to motivate them. And I'm assuming, please tell me if this is correct or not. I'm assuming some of your IB kids come from fairly affluent backgrounds. Is this correct? So no, you don't have affluent. Okay. Because dealing with affluent parents is a different ballgame than dealing with parents uh, who are not. Okay. The DP program in the high school is selective. Okay, got it. All righty. All right. So for closure now. I'm going to send a research study that some of you may inter be interested in reading. It's called Common Core, Socioeconomic Status, Middle-Level Student Achievement. And it's a lot of hard research about what has happened around state assessment, Common Core, uh, achievement data. Uh, and it fits in with that timeline I showed you this morning, some of the background pieces. So let me say thank you so much.
Um, thank you for all you do for kids. I just have to say thank you, thank you. And thank you for the hours you're working right now. Having said that, I hope everybody has a great day.